Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. Hope all is good with you and yours. I'm all right. It's uh, another week into the transfer window, another week into the off-season, and another week in which Arsenal haven't done anything yet. Dominoes have yet to start falling. The market hasn't really begun to start moving yet. But there's time. There is time, of course. But given how much there is to do this summer, you'd like to think that you know, something will happen soon. I'm keeping fingers crossed that something will happen soon. The transfer market and how it operates, how it works from a journalist's point of view is something that will be up for discussion with my first guest now in a few minutes' time. That's Charles Watts from Goal. We'll talk about a few of the bits and pieces that have been going on this week and transfer rumors, information, where it comes from, how, how, what's the word I'm looking for, how reliable it is, etc., etc. That will be up for discussion in a, in a little bit. As well as that, uh, after Charles, I'll be chatting to George Bird, who is the man who knows everything there is to know about the Arsenal youth, the under-23s. It comes in the wake of Steve Bold's departure this week, so I'll be talking to him about what's going on there, what he expects to happen this summer, who are some of the up-and-coming names at that level that we should be looking out for and more so that's that's all in in this week's show euro 2020 except in 2021 has been quite good fun this week i suppose it depends entirely on your your nationality like if you're english you'll be happy if you're portuguese if you're german if you're swedish happy 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 if you're polish Slovakian, Turkey, it's not been as much fun for you guys. But as a neutral, I've really uh, quite enjoyed this week. I thought the the last 30 minutes between Poland and Sweden was about the most exciting 30 minutes of the tournament so far. It was really great end-to-end stuff. I know it didn't end well for our Polish friends, and there are many of you listening. Sorry about that, but we've lots of Swedish friends too who will be quite happy with how that, uh, how that went. But it was really great. Just from a pure footballing perspective, it was very, very enjoyable. Indeed. A lot going on, of course. The knockout rounds are now completed. We know who's playing who. England versus Germany. That's a bit tasty, isn't it? And Bakayo Saka 
Well, he really stood out against the Czech Republic. He wasn't expected to start. There was the COVID issue for Mason Mount, and that may well have opened the door for him. Uh, But he really took his chance against the Czech Republic, played really well. And it was good to see an Arsenal player contribute positively uh, in the tournament. There hasn't been a great deal of Arsenal interest during Euro 2020, except in 2021, because, well, we just don't have very many players there. Kieran Tierney's gone home. Granit is still in it. Burnley. Leno, of course, is the backup goalkeeper for Germany. Um, And unless something happens to Manuel Neuer, he is not going to play. So we take our Arsenal bits and pieces where we can get them. Will Saka keep his place for that game against Germany? I would certainly pick him, but then I am not Gareth Southgate. The main difference between the two of us, of course, is that I can take a, a decent penalty too soon. Sorry. Anyway, look, who knows what will happen in that England versus Germany game and in the first knockout round of games which take place over the weekend. Right. Let's get on with the show. And as I mentioned earlier, my guest first is Charles Watts from Goal to talk about Saka, Saliba, the transfer market and much more. Hello, Charles. Hi, Jermaine. How are you? I'm good, thank you. We should talk a little bit about Bukayo Saka, I think, after the week he's had uh, a man-of-the-match performance for England during the week against the Czech Republic. Like, for Arsenal fans, that's not a surprise. We know what he can do. Were you maybe a little bit surprised that his quality has been a surprise to to some of the wider football-watching community, if you like? Yeah, I think it was. I think it kind of might say a little bit about how much people take bother to take notice of Arsenal at the moment. Yeah, that um, few seem to have known exactly how good Bukayo was. I put, I think it was just after the team news had been announced. I put a, put a, um, a just picture up of Saka, and I've got. I, I used to cover Reading. I've still got quite a few Reading fans who follow me on Twitter. And yeah, quite a few Reading fans sort of reply to us and he shouldn't even be in the squad let alone in the team and I was like what are you mad have you not seen what I've been seeing for the last year and it just made me realise how many people actually aren't watching Arsenal at the mm. moment um, because he's just been absolutely brilliant isn't he and uh, I was I, yeah I was surprised and it's, it's interesting now that everyone's sort of woken up to exactly how good he is and he's not been out of the headlines ever since that since he came off against uh, against the Czechs and a fair play to him. I, I love watching Bacar. I love how he takes everything in his stride. Nothing mm. phases him. And it was, you know, he was under a lot of pressure on, uh, on was it Tuesday night, Wednesday night, mm. whatever it was, because there was such a clamour for Jaden Sanchez to start. And yeah. then in the build-up to the game, he didn't start. Saka got the nod ahead of him. And everyone's thinking, everyone who wasn't an Arsenal fan, mm. thinking, why why is he getting in ahead of Sancho? who scored all these goals, set up all these goals at Dortmund. So he was under a lot of pressure from the start to perform. And, he goes out there and plays like that in the Euros at Wembley under that sort of pressure. He's just nothing phases him. Mm. I've never, I've never, from the moment I watched him, saw him that start against Frankfurt in the Europa League, that first game when we were over in Germany. And um, he performed like that, scored the goal, set up, set up a goal, scored the goal, came down and talked to us in the mix zone. There was about 20 of us, 25 of us over there, <laughs> gathered around. And he was 17 at the time. Coming out, and all the Arsenal press offers before I'm saying, look, we're going to bring him out. Just be gentle with him. You know, he's a kid, he's 17. He's never done anything like that before. And he just walks out, bang in the middle of us all in this massive huddle. Normally, uh, you know, experienced player sometimes gets a bit sort of threatened by it all and clams up. Mm. And he just took it all in his stride. He was brilliant. He told us so much, talked for ages. 
nothing phases him. He's just an absolute machine and I'm delighted to see him playing now so well for England as well as Arsenal. There was some great stuff during the week from Freddie Jumberg on the, the coach's voice where he talked about uh, Saka and, you know, he was coaching him when he was a 15-year-old and he got the job at the under-23s and he basically insisted that he bring Saka with him to play and train for for that team rather than the, the under-18s, which is sort of in the middle and that would be the natural kind of progression for him and it does really speak to his his maturity as a as a player and a young man that he can sort of I'm not going to say skip levels but it is a bit like a little genius in school going ahead a few years and going to college at the age of 14 or something like that he is slightly or 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 somewhat ahead of what would be normally expected for a player of his age and he showed that again on on Tuesday yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's a 19-year-old kid and he pretty single-handedly carried Arsenal through last season for the, for the most part. Mm. He got a little tired at the end, I think. His performance has dipped at the end, but that's perfectly understandable given what he put into that season and how much responsibility he had to take because, you know, senior stars all around him weren't performing. And I did, I did a piece before the Euros. I went back and I spoke to his um, football teacher at Greenford High School when he who coached him when he was like 11 12 years old when he went when he went through and he was he was already at Arsenal at that point mm. um and you know that school absolutely worship him they've got England shirts up but with him signed up when you walk in there they've got pictures of him and they hold him as such a um you know so a figure to look up to for all the students going through that school because not just for what he's achieved in the football pitch but for how he handled himself when he was at school you know he, he mm. ended up getting four a stars a's in his GCSEs all the time. He was working at Arsenal one day a week. He was on day release at Hale End. And he, his teacher said he never once didn't do his homework, never fell behind despite not being at school. He did everything exactly what was expected of him. Um, and they just see him as an absolute model student. They love him there. And from in all aspects of his life, from anyone you speak to from when he was 11, 12, through to where he is now, he's worked with him at Arsenal. Mm. They just... No one has got a bad word to say about him and the way he handles himself on and off the pitch. He's, you know, he's an absolute diamond by all accounts. And, uh, you know, Arsenal, very, very lucky. And, and everyone, like you said, Freddie and everyone at Hayland who's worked with him and helped develop him into this man and footballer at this age at 19 deserves an awful lot of credit for that. Before the England squad was announced, there was a kind of... Um sort of feeling that maybe it might be the best thing for Bakayo Saka after the season that he had, how much he played, how much, I won't say how much responsibility was given to him more than how much responsibility he took um, throughout this, you know, what was a really difficult season. As we all know, we don't need to go over the, the ins and outs of that again. But, you know, he won the the Player of the Year award um, from the official website, et cetera, et cetera. But there was a feeling that maybe the best thing for him would be to, to have a summer off to recharge, rest, um, you know, get ready for for the new season, et cetera, et cetera. And I think we could all see that. But do you feel like going away with England, um, being part of a big international tournament, doing what he did, for example, on Tuesday as well, maybe people weren't expecting him to, to get much playing time, but, you know, he made a big contribution to England's win, that that would be more beneficial to him as a player than than rest, if you know what I mean, that that he can take those experiences and, and feel like a, a senior part of the England team or the England squad. And, um, you know, that that's one of the things people have talked about. There isn't a great deal of Arsenal representation at the Euros. 
you know, is it not a good thing that the, the, the best players that we have go away and play with their countries, even if we would like to wrap them in cotton wool and, and make sure they're, they're fit and ready for the start of the new season? Yeah, I, I think it's absolutely a good thing. Look, we've got, we're our, our Arsenal hats on. We obviously we want Saka protected yeah. and rested up and ready to go at the start of next season. But for him, for his development, for for everything, like you said, for his development as a man, as a footballer, it's, this this will be absolutely huge for him. It'll be so beneficial in terms of his career, what it will give to his belief, his confidence, how he belongs. Um, mm. You know, I think it's absolutely going to be a good thing. And I don't, you know, he's not. I can't. It's not going to ruin him for next season. I, I can't see why it would at all. I think it'll be fine. He'll get a longer, you know, a longer break. He won't come back for the start of preseason with Arsenal. He'll get a longer break and he'll be ready to go once he does get uh, does get back. He might, you know, have to sit out the first couple of weeks of the season, perhaps. Um, hopefully not, but maybe. Mm. But yeah, he's a young kid. He's 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 got. He's not someone we've seen be injury prone yet or anything like that. So I don't I don't see how it's going to be an issue. I think it's going to be a very, very good thing. I think belief wise, confidence wise, it's just going to take him up another level. Sure. Um, and, you know, hopefully it'll work to Arsenal's benefit next season, not a hindrance. Speaking of rest and relaxation, Kieran Tierney gets to put his feet up, which I suppose is, uh, you know, with all due respect to our Scottish pals, it's a good thing from an Arsenal perspective. Uh, Scotland obviously will be disappointed that they didn't make progress, but but Tierney, particularly given the end of the season that he had, they got that injury, we thought he was going to be out for the rest of the season as Euros were in doubt, and then he comes back and he got a little injury while he was away with Scotland as well. You know, he is such a, uh, or hopefully is going to be such a key part of the team next season that that he is somebody who we can say well okay it's it's good for him that he can go on holidays now and I don't know he strikes me as the kind who might have like an Alexis Sanchez holiday you know run up and down a volcano for three weeks when he's supposed to be resting but uh you know if he can sort of recharge a little bit it'll be a good thing yeah I'm I'm, (laughs) having said all that about Sacra I'm certainly not going to cry about (laughs) Scotland going out and (laughs) Tierney getting a rest Uh, but I think that's definitely a good thing for Arsenal um, that he's not involved too much further in this tournament. Um, yeah, I, don't, I can't even imagine Tierney going on holiday. You can't see him over on the beaches in Portugal or Vegas or something like that, can you? No, um, not really. <laughs> I don't know what holiday for Tierney would be or <laughs> consist of. Um, uh, so, yeah, no, I, I think it's really, that is definitely a good thing that Tierney can, can come back. I mean, he's got his contract, which should hopefully be announced and confirmed and signed in the, you know, pretty imminently. And so that's going to be a massive thing for Arsenal, getting him confirmed for another five years. I'd be stunned if he's not captain at least halfway into that new contract. Mm. I'd be very, very surprised. Um, you know, he's a fabulous player. Injuries have been a bit of an issue. And so the longer he gets off this summer to rest and get ready for next season, the better, because Arsenal are certainly going to need him. We saw how different a side they were at the end of last season when Tierney got that injury and missed that, the, the crucial sort of run in and came back and clearly wasn't 100% fit. So, um, yeah, I think while it's good to see Saka continue, like I said, I'm certainly not going to cry about Scotland no. uh, Scotland heading out home early, as usual, and uh, Tierney getting his rest. Oh, well, there speaks an Englishman right there for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Nil-nil in the cup final. Yeah, well, look, <laughs> let's move on to a story that's doing the rounds this week, and that's um, William Saliba. And Arsenal are interested in bringing in a right-sided centre-half, and the implications of that for for William Saliba seem more serious than for any other player that we have in our books. And, and uh, you know, we are... We are speculating a little bit. There is information out there that maybe we're looking to loan him again, and he is considering what the future might hold for him at Arsenal. 
Um, you know, if we do spend big on somebody like Ben White, obviously it's an impediment to him playing first team football unless somebody else goes, whether it's Rob Holding or Pablo Marie and Saliba can fit in on, on the left hand side of the defense, but it does seem like, like that's going on. Um, you know, what do you make of this situation overall? Um, with regards to Saliba, it feels like there's something at least that we're not aware of in terms of how this is all playing out. Yeah, it's a really difficult one, this. I mean, we obviously don't know all the ins and outs of it. Nothing's really ever emerged about a proper falling out, which is odd because someone somewhere usually finds out about these things and it, and it mm. emerges and it's never really come out that there has been any sort of issue. You know, it's not like a Gwendouzi incident, which you can sort of trace back to exactly why... Matteo's been kind of frozen out the way he has, but you haven't really had that with Saliba. And um, I think there's a, there's a fair few reasons behind it. I think he's ultimately a real sort of victim of the regime change at Arsenal. I think he's kind of the guy who's going to fall through the cracks of that massive change. He was signed by Unai. He was, well, he was signed by Rao. He was signed by Hoos. Mm. You know, all those people. You look back to that <laughs> that video, his social media video when he signed that everyone loves. Um and that they that he produced and his team produced. You got Who's Farmy on the plane on the private jet with him coming over. You got Raoul welcoming him in and dancing with his agent at Colney when the thing's being done. You know, they're all gone mm. and Unai's there and everyone else has come in and it kind of feels to me like he might end up being the victim of the, the changes that have gone on and he's kind of slid be- beneath the cracks or between the cracks a little bit. Obviously Arteta's come in, he didn't fancy him last season. That was very, very clear. Um from what I've heard, he wasn't great in pre-season and it, it looked pretty apparent that he needed, he wasn't ready for, for the Premier League, for Arsenal. Um, the the issue I have with that is, although he might not have been quite ready for the Premier League, I don't see why he wasn't ready for the Europa League. There's no way yeah. he wasn't good enough to play in those Europa League group stages, which at least then would have got him some competitive minutes and we wouldn't be sitting here thinking, we haven't even seen him play one minute yet. I think <clears throat> they totally messed up the start of last season, you know, if he wasn't going to play, they had to get him a loan deal. For him to stay and basically waste six months playing with the under-23, that's no good for anyone. It's no good for Arsenal. It's no good for Saliba. It's no good for the kind of relationship between the club and him as well. It was a, mm. you know, That was a real disaster. Not getting him that loan move in the summer was awful. And um, I think that has caused a lot of issues as well behind the scenes. And, you know, does he feel completely undervalued by that? And it was interesting seeing him at Nice because he did perfectly well in and again, you sort of looked at how he performed at Liga, in Liga, which albeit it's not the Premier League, again, you go back to thinking, well, if you can play that well in Liga, mm. there's no way he couldn't have played in the Europa League or the or the uh, League Cup in that first half season while he was still at Arsenal. So clearly there's been some errors errors made there. I think White coming in is going to be an issue for him. When you talk to people at Arsenal about it, their sort of position hasn't changed. He's still seen it. He's, he's still... It's always, look, he's coming back in pre-season. He's going to get his opportunity. Whether he's now looking at it... Mm. These people are looking at it and thinking, well, they're after White. This is, isn't good news. I could understand White be pondering his future a little bit and looking looking elsewhere because he doesn't want to come back and not play again. Um, and it's just a tough situation. I, again, it, it almost comes back to the transfer itself. You know, well, well, who who sanctioned that deal? Why was that deal done? If he's not ready, yeah. Why are you spending twenty seven, thirty million pound on a on a centre back who, at that age, to be honest, when you look across the top leagues in Europe, how many top clubs have got an 18, 19 year old centre back playing week in, week out and in the books, none of them really, yeah. it just doesn't really happen. There's a, obviously a couple of examples you can find, but it's very, very rare. So 
while although we were very excited about that signing, it seemed like Arsenal were being pretty clever. Maybe now you look at it and think again, it, as part of wider deals that summer, it's turned out to be a bit of a, a red herring and not and certainly hasn't worked out as we yeah. all hoped for. I mean, it, it sort of raises a question about like I, I'm not casting any aspersions on the quality of William Saliba. Certainly, he was really highly rated in France, but I do wonder is there a, is there a, you know, possibility that you can sign a really good player at the wrong time or at too young an age. Like, I understand the idea, the concept of going, well, look, he's got all this potential. We'll get in before anybody else can really uh, gazump us or, or before his price tag gets even higher. You know, I understand the, the rationale for that. But if you're a Premier League club, you're buying a kid at 18 years of age, you're loaning him back for one year. The second year, you think, well, he's not ready. He hasn't played enough. There were reasons, obviously, because there was injury. There was the pandemic. He didn't play for six months. Was he ready to come in and do it at Premier League level? No. You can make the argument as you have, and I agree that he could easily have played in the Europa League against the opposition that we played against. Um, you know, maybe that would have give, given all of us uh, a better understanding of, of where William Saliba was as a player. But I just wonder if, you know, you can buy a player too young. I mean, I'm thinking slightly different, obviously, but but someone like Gerard Piquet, who went to Manchester United and, you know, they bought him uh, around the same time we bought Fabregas. There was that idea that he's a young player who's going to be a, a really good talent in the future, but he didn't quite do it at United, went back to Barcelona and became a mainstay in one of the greatest teams that, that Europe has ever seen. So, you know, it might just be a case that, that as a deal... While there might have been some logic behind it, it was just a bad idea. Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think right, but it's it's easy to look at it like that in mm. hindsight, isn't it? I think at the time we were all pretty excited about it because I think we've all been crying out for Arsenal to be trying to kind of follow the whole. I don't know, use Dortmund as an example. Mm. You know, that's the type of signing Dortmund would make. But then they'd throw him straight in the team and. And then they'd see him, you know, they'd give him the chance to progress and suddenly you've got a 40, 50 million pound player on your hands like yeah. Norman do time and time again. And um, and we were kind of hoping this was going to be that sort of thing. And for once, Arsenal had done something um, pretty smart in the transfer market. Ultimately, it hasn't worked out like that. And and now you've got a potential of a 30 million pound player, 27 million pound player, you're not even going to see play for Arsenal, which is mm. just mad. And, it's a tough one. I mean, I didn't see him loads in League R last season, but his numbers were good and... Again, you're kind of looking at it and thinking, is he really not? Is he really that much worse than Rob Holding or uh, players like that? Why? Why is he not going to mm. get a look in at all next season? It's it's a weird one, and it's really tough. I, I wish I had sort of background info on some major falling out that kind of explains the absence completely. But like I said, I've just not ever heard it, and from the fact that it hasn't been reported elsewhere, it doesn't feel like anyone else has heard it either. And um, it's just a real mysterious situation yeah. because he's obviously not a dud. There's no way he's a dud because you don't have the reviews that he got beforehand. You don't, you know, and these are for respected um, scouts who went over and brought it in. Like if this was just an absolute row deal, <laughs> then <laughs> I wouldn't be overly surprised that it's absolutely tanked. But I know that Francis Cagao was right involved in this, you mm. know, and other very respected scouts at Arsenal were very involved in getting him and thought they'd brought up, you know, signed a real superstar, potential superstar. Um, and so 
yeah, there's so many. It's just a really baffling situation, and I'd love to see him in pre-season come in and have a really good go. Like Arsenal mm. might, send, might sign Ben White, they might not. I don't see ultimately why Ben White signing absolutely is it for Saliba. Means the end for Saliba. Maybe he sees it as the end, which I'd be a bit disappointed in if he throws a towel in just because Ben White is signed. You know, come back and give it your go in pre-season. Try and impress if you believe in yourself that much and you're good enough. Then try and come back here and impress. You've got the summer to do it. We've seen Matteo Guendouzi do that when he first arrived, uh, when everyone thought he was going to play for the under-23s. He impressed from the start and got himself in the starting eleven for the first Premier League game of the season that summer. So there's no reason why Saliba can't do that if, as everyone's certainly telling me at Arsenal, he is going to be given the chance to prove himself. Mm. So the, the story's coming out about him potentially looking elsewhere. That's coming from Saliba's side. It's not yeah. coming from Arsenal's side, really. But if he is feeling like that and a decent offer arrives, then you know, Arsenal potentially would would have to look at it. I'd like to see him loan have a season in the Premier League. If they're going to loan him again, mm. I'd love to see him in the Premier League where we can actually really watch him week in, week out and yeah. really assess where he is in in terms of playing in this country. Yeah, you wouldn't blame him though. Like if he was, you know, when you are a £28 million signing at 18, it does speak to A, your talent and potential and B, some measure of faith in you by the club who's bought you to, to, to shell out that kind of money. So if you're coming back and it's the third season albeit with difficult circumstances because, as you say, managers have changed, head of football has changed, uh, the COVID, the whole football landscape has changed, et cetera, et cetera. You know, if you were him, you would be thinking, well, they don't believe in me if they're going to go out and spend maybe twice, close to twice what they spent on me on a, on a, a player from the, the Premier League. I do wonder as well what the, what the ownership must think of this deal, this player, this this outlay, this money that we spent on him, and it's basically not money down the drain yet, but we've not had any return um, on the pitch for that money. And whether or not they feel like that's part of Mikel Arteta's responsibility, or are they prepared to sort of say, well, what happened post-Arson wasn't great, it didn't work, we could compartmentalise it and put it into that category and, and just sort of go along with, with what the manager and the technical director want now, which, again, we're not 100% sure of what that is. Yeah. Well, I think the fact that... I think I think Raul leaving almost as soon as Tim Lewis came on board was a big, um, mm. clear example of what the, what the board thought of those sort of deals that had been taking place under the previous regime. And Raul obviously got the... Um, the finger, finger was pointed firmly at Raul and why, what happened with that money and where, why it was spent badly but um, I'd, I'd imagine there was, certainly must be conversations between the owners and, and Mikel in terms of what are you doing with this this person that we've invested heavily in but clearly they're willing to back Mikel again mm. you know, I don't think anyone I don't think Mikel could have complained if he'd have got the boot after the end of last season um, I, I didn't expect it was going to happen but if he did get mm. fired up I wouldn't. He wouldn't really have had too many complaints after two eighth place finishes in the Premier League, but they're clearly backing him. They've kept him in the job, and it seems like they're going to be. They're willing to invest big money again this summer, potentially in positions like the centre back where they've already got plenty of them already. So, you know, the players that Mikel's after and wants, they're clearly looking to try and sign, which suggests that they're willing to give him. You mm. know, they're willing to back him, and they still believe in him. So. Um, I'm sure there must be question marks, and you know, at, at the end of the season, they must look down and go through the squad with Josh and Tim Lewis now, and you know, um, Richard Garlick. They must go over with these players and development or lack of development. But um, clearly, 
Mikel's not getting too much of the blame for it at this point. Mm. Let's move on to sort of the wider issue of, of transfers and and what's going on. It feels pretty deliberately quiet from an Arsenal perspective at the moment in that we're hearing some things, we're hearing some names, we're hearing you know vague reports about certain deals and certain players, but it doesn't feel like any of that information is leaking from inside Arsenal, if you like, and they're playing their hands very close to their chest. How are you finding this transfer window in that sense? Obviously, there are many... Um, many ways of finding out information about transfers and potential deals and clubs interest in players and stuff like that. But uh, are you heartened or disheartened or what do you take from the fact that Arsenal are being this quiet? Is that stuff beavering on in the background? They don't want to be distracted. They don't want, uh, don't want to show their hand to anybody or is, you know, the, the other fear, if you go far the other way is like, well, there's, there's nothing going on. I mean, I can't believe there's nothing going on, but you know, nothing actually would surprise me with this football club. No, I mean, there is stuff going on. Um, but I mean, Arsenal are never one to really shout from the rooftop when it comes mm. to transfers. They're, they're just not, they're not a club that briefs extensively. You do, obviously, at times you get, um, you, you talk to people and you get, you can get steer in the right direction when they want it to, but they're not one that brief from the rooftops, not like some other clubs I, that I know. Um, so a lot of the information does come from elsewhere, but um, they're, they're certainly working. They're, there is stuff going on. You know, they obviously had a couple of bid rejected for two key targets. Um, and from people that I've spoken to, not, I'm not just talking about Arsenal here, but there's certainly plenty of agents in the industry who are looking to get stuff done this summer. They say it's just one big, massive game of cat and mouse at the moment in the um, in the market. And I think you can see that by the fact barely anyone's done any deals. There's mm. lots of talk, but barely anyone's done anything of, of any note really so far. And agents are just saying that there's, because there's so little money, because no one has got anything <laughs> at the moment, it's just a big game of cat and mouse because you've got the selling club who want to sell to bring in money because they've got no money elsewhere to then invest. And so they're obviously after as much as they can possibly get for the player. And then you've got the buying club who want to buy for as little as little as possible. And so it's just all of the, it's just this big game of cat and mouse to see who's going to break first. And you've kind of seen that with Arsenal, with the Gonga, with White. The bids have gone in, they're rejected. And the talks are ongoing, but nothing's been nothing's been agreed yet because no one's agreeing about the price. It's the same with Granite Jacker. I mean, you look at Granite that Granite Jacker mm. deal, that is all pretty much just waiting to be done and dusted. But Roma still haven't hit what Arsenal want them to hit. And there's been talks for ages, there's been bids rejected. Arsenal know exactly what they want for Jacker. Roma haven't hit it yet and it hasn't moved. And it's just so many players like that. Gwenduzi with Marseille, those talks are ongoing. And again, it's, you know, behind the scenes, that's a done deal in terms of player and happy to go there. Marseille want him, Arsenal happy to sell him. But the price hasn't been hit yet. And everyone's holding out for the right price at the moment because they know how important money is going to be this summer because there's so little of it around. Is it a case of, you know, what you, like you set a benchmark perhaps. So maybe the first player as a club that you sell becomes the benchmark for for other deals that you might want to do. Do you, do you think that's it? Or is there a case of like, well, if one domino goes, the rest will go? Or, or you know, how is it? I understand like financially it is difficult for all the clubs. Arsenal want to sell high and buy cheap. Everyone does, but that's mm. not quite how it's going to work. At what point do clubs decide, okay, we're going to compromise? Or, or you know, is there a danger, 
danger in inverted commas, like that this window more than any other could become a huge scramble in the last few weeks. And we should point out that this year, the transfer window is open until August 31st. It's not closing before the season starts. Mm -hmm. So there is the danger of your squad not being anywhere near as settled as you might like for the opening games, the opening weeks of the season. Yeah, I think there's a big danger of that. I mean, it always happens, doesn't it? No matter how much you say, oh, we don't want to scramble right at the end of the window, it always turns into a scramble. It's mm. just, I mean, I think Mikel spoke about it before the end of last season. He was asked one question, do you, do you want to get everything done early? And he said, well, of course I do, but it's just not going to happen. He, he mm. kind of knows it. Everyone in football knows it. It always ends up in this big scramble. I think with Arsenal, there's so much that needs to be done. You kind of feel like it has to start soon. It, it mm. needs to start getting done because, in fact, there's so much in terms of outgoings, incomings, contracts. Um, you, you kind of felt like something should have happened early on. And if maybe if Granite, Granite, that deal with Roma had been done early and they had agreed a fee before the Euros started, then it would have really sort of kicked things into life a bit. That didn't happen. And then Euros has further complicated things. You look at the goalkeeper situation at Arsenal, for example. I always use this as a prime example of just how much work Arsenal have got to do. Because you've got the situation with Burnt Leno where you don't know what's happening with him. Two years left on his contract. He's clearly open to a move. Arsenal, from what I hear, would, would be open to selling Burnt Leno. He's away at the Euros, though. Nothing's going to happen until we come back. Arsenal aren't in a position to go out and sign a keeper that they're interested in, like Andre and Nana at Ajax. They're interested in him. Aaron Ramsdale, they're interested in him. But they can't go out and sign one of those players, I don't think, before you either know exactly what's happening with Leno. Because you can't end up starting the season having got one of those in and then suddenly Leno stays and you're stuck with those two goalkeepers with no European football to Mm. offer either so it's just not they can't afford it for a start and they can't give anyone else some game time so it's a really complicated situation because you want to bring someone in potentially but you've got to move Leno on first meanwhile you've got the second choice goalkeeper who you have to try and sign which you haven't got yet because Renison's clearly well rubbish and um, (laughs) you've uh, and you want to try and sign um, Matt Ryan. You want to bring him back, but you can't offer him first-team football. Other clubs want to sign him and are offering him first-team football. Your third-choice goalkeeper, well, probably your third-choice goalkeeper, Arthur Okonkwo, is out of contract. And although that's going, from what I'm told, pretty well and they're hopeful he's going to sign, it's not done yet. So you basically got you haven't got a clue who your first-choice goalkeeper is going to be. You haven't got a second-choice goalkeeper and your third-choice keeper is out of contract. <laughs> I mean, that is enough to keep Eddie busy, busy for the next few weeks, let alone the entire rest of the uh, the squad that you've got to deal with. Um, it's just mad. It's, there's so much going on. I mean, Emil Smith-Rowe, the fact that Villa are even emboldened enough to bid for Emil Smith-Rowe mm. is a warning sign in itself. Now, everyone tells me at Arsenal, look, we are not selling Emil Smith-Rowe. It's not going to happen, whatever they bid. But... The fact that Villa actually believe they have a chance is a warning sign and is, you know, you've got to get that contract sorted out ASAP. It should have been done at the end of last season, really, straight away. They should have got that deal done. And it's just they're spinning plates, mm. Garlic and Edu. Absolutely spinning plates. And at some point they've got to say, right, let's get this sorted now and start moving forward. Because yeah. at the moment I just I would be lost if I was them and I sort of stood in their office, looked around on their notice boards and their pin up boards of to-do lists they've got around there. I, just, I wouldn't have a clue where to start. It's like that uh, that scene from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia where they're standing and they're doing like that crime scene. They've got photos and stuff going everywhere, yeah. bits of string and, and what have you. I mean, the Smith-Rowe thing. I mean, if Villa feel emboldened to make a bid, 
you know, they, they look at Arsenal as a club like going back to Saliba who didn't get the Saliba thing done. So maybe there, there's uh, an opportunity there to, to try and do something like that. And there is so much going on. How much impact do you think Richard Garlick is going to have in terms of easing the burden on Edu, who has made himself the, the point of contact for all transfer business at Arsenal? There's a committee, as we know. Mikel Arteta is involved. Per Mertesacker, I think, is involved. Richard Garlick has to be involved because he's going to be dealing with the, the legalities of situations like that. Does that give uh, does that give us some hope that, at least in terms of load management, there is there is something going on there in a, in a positive way? Well, you'd hope so. I'm, I'm told he's settled, settled in well and he's impressed a lot of people mm. in what he's doing. But um, yeah, you would hope it's certainly going to lessen the burden on burden on Edu. Um, they needed to get someone in once Hoos left, and they needed to, and they've got in an experienced guy who knows who knows his stuff and. Um, has settled in well from what I'm told. So yeah, I, it, it should do, but um, you know, that's it's not really something to celebrate because Arsenal should, they should, they need that person anyway. They can't, yeah. they shouldn't just have Eddie, um, who let's face it, is still learning on the job, looking after contracts as well as going out and signing players and bringing and, and selling players. It's just too much for one person, an inexperienced person to do. Mm. Um, so they needed someone in and hopefully Garlic will, will help with that. And they got the Tierney deal done, um, you know, which is which is a good thing. And, yeah. Um, you know, once that's confirmed and you know totally one hundred percent finalised, then you would hope they would move straight on to Smith Rowe and get that sorted because yeah. A, he deserves it. He's, he, he needs rewarded for what he did last season, mm. and you don't want to get in a situation like he did with Saka and end up those those nervy times when he's down to the final year and suddenly mm. you're really facing up to the prospect of potentially losing losing him, especially to a club like Aston Villa. With all due respect, I, I mean, can you imagine if you went Aston Villa? <laughs> be an absolute horror show for Arsenal. It would be, yeah. Disaster. They've got to get that sorted. Yeah, it should be it should be one of the easiest things they they've got to do this summer. You know, in terms of contracts and players moving and players coming in, those things are difficult. But getting a a twenty year old who's come through the academy to sign a new deal, a a lucrative new deal to be part of a rebuild of of the football club really shouldn't be that difficult. So fingers crossed playing week in, week out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) As well. I mean it should be an absolute Given. That's why I just feel it. You know, they've taken their eye off the ball a little bit on that one. He should have got that straight as soon mm. as that contract, the season was finished last season. It should have been the first thing, top of the agenda, mm. get it done, move on, and not get into the situation where you suddenly got into now. Yeah, brand new number as well for him. Hopefully next season as well with yeah, that absolutely. with that new contract. Just going back to transfers and when you're. When you're digging around, when you're trying to find out information about a transfer deal, I'm not necessarily talking about Arsenal here specifically, but obviously um, that's a big part of what you do. Speaking to agents is is a part of how you uncover information and, and what have you. When you speak to agents, you know, you're getting one particular side of something. You know, how important is it for you when you get a bit of information, let's say, from that side that you apply critical thinking to that. Like, uh, you know, you can't take everything at face value just because an agent tells you something. You know, there might be, look, he's looking after his client, he's looking after himself. Those things might be at odds with, you know, a club's outlook on something like that. So how is that something that you deal with? I mean, are there some that are more trustworthy than others that you think, well, this guy's not going to lead me down a garden path or others who you go, Ooh, I'm taking that with a, a big pinch of salt. How does that work for you? 
Yeah, it's crucial. Uh, absolutely crucial. A, I think a lot of it depends on your relationship with the agent. Like you said, you kind of know how much you can trust someone mm. or, or not, or how much um, sort of legitimacy you can put on what they're saying. And you've got to use your experience as well in this situation. And it's you can't just go out and s- splashing out, uh, putting stuff out there, which has just come from one person who maybe you don't know very well and um, clearly has an agenda. There's one There's one prime example of this that I can't really go too much into that um, – but I had someone that I'd never really spoken to too much before um, come to me with something earlier on in the window. Actually, it wasn't even in, earlier on in the window. It was before the end of last season um, with something that, um, you know, told me a lot of stuff about it. And I was looking at it and I was just thinking, this doesn't feel this doesn't <laughs> feel right to me or it doesn't feel, I'm not going to run this. And I left it, you know, I've kept it, I kept in touch with the, with the person. I left it in a sort of, continue to see how it's all bubbled along um but <laughs> this person clearly went to someone else in the industry who ran it ran the story like there and then clearly hadn't sort of double sourced it or anything like that and ran ran the story went pretty hard on it and you know obviously it's not, nothing happened of it it's not come to fruition at all and i was talking to some other people that i know other journalists i know about this uh, a few days ago and uh, it was just a prime example of one sort of using your your head and your mm. sense your journalistic sense of like no this just this one just doesn't feel right it feels like it's someone trying to get someone's name out there and really bring sort of publicity because everyone wants their players linked with arsenal i mean it's huge once it's easy once to do this summer in <laughs> our say well, one person in our arsenal pack the journalist pack runs a story mm. about uh, about someone then it just gets picked up, especially in the media now, it gets picked up absolutely everywhere. You know, every single mm. website runs it. It just gets turned around. And suddenly that player's name is is everywhere. So you can see why agents want it. But, yeah, you can't just go around this, uh, yeah, putting a story out on absolutely everything you get told. Far from it. You need to double source it. You need to look at elsewhere. So use your, mm. use your brain, really, to work out if it's really one that feels right. And um, so, yeah, it's one that I think the sort of younger journos possibly – they get something, they'll be quite keen to rush it out straight away. But I think as you get older and you learn how agents work and uh, you you get a little bit wiser to it all. Yeah, again, just speaking very generally here, um, you know, I don't want to go into specifics about, um, you know, names or anything like that, but how much does who you're working for have an impact on on how you can operate, if you know what I mean? So it strikes me that, that, you know, at goal, you're not under massive pressure to come out with three or four transfer stories every day, whereas there might be people working at certain publications who are under that kind of pressure, who are, uh, because they're perhaps a bit more driven by traffic and uh, the need for clicks and things like that, have to sort of, I won't say uh, compromise their principles in any way, but they are, the job demands that they they file copy and that can itself bring a certain amount of pressure or maybe force you into doing or running a story that you might not otherwise if you had a bit more time or a lot lot less pressure on you yeah i think that's certainly it's that will certainly come into it if you're if you say you're not a I think if you're a correspondent, you know, you're a specific club correspondent, slightly mm. little bit different, but maybe you're on a desk, you're just working uh, on a desk job and you've got, you know, you're doing a, a shift or something like that and you get a lot of pressure to turn things around, get as many stories out as you possibly can. 
um you know there are some some places that do that and put pressure on people and you know you'll look at they'll set targets in terms of page views and story counts and everything mm. like that and that's address just an awful thing <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's an awful thing to do and um you know i've been in i've been in jobs before where the pressure is on when you're sort of looking at exactly how many people are reading your stories all the time and it kind of takes over and and it puts so much pressure on you you feel guilty if you're not helping out and stuff like that unfortunately mm. obviously work uh, I, I don't have that uh, goal but it can you can get into that situation and uh, again i think it's all about your experience and your age and when you're in a position and you've been doing it for a long time you don't have that sort of pressure because you can well, you can kind of tell tell your boss that you're not going to be doing that, and yeah. um, you don't want your you don't want your sort of integrity questioned as a journalist. And it's the worst thing to be putting that stuff out there all the time and it not happening, and it just makes yourself look stupid ultimately. And then ultimately, it makes you the place you're working for look stupid as well. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's it is it can be difficult. I think as a young as a youngster in the game, especially nowadays with um, how online media works that you can be under that sort of pressure you can have people above you you know demanding you do certain things and they'll flag up stories that are elsewhere and saying you know do something on this what, what can you do on this and you feel the pressure mm. to do something then just for the sake of it rather than the, the fact that it's correct and you know it's correct so um, again it's just something I think you learn as you get older and you get wiser especially in this new media industry that we all work in that um that you've got to make sure you're correct because ultimately it's not going to do you any good and it's not going to do your site any good if you're just putting out putting out rubbish that doesn't turn out to be true yeah most of the time yeah i mean and the landscape of transfers and the and the actual transfer industry itself lends itself in some ways to to misinformation being valuable if you know what i mean that you can always say well it was 99 percent done and then it fell apart and that happens a lot it does happen a lot with deals that they're very very close and all the information is given in good faith but at the end there can be a snag there can be a hitch of some kind that means the deal doesn't get done and and it's you know i think it's in some ways it 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 allows the spoofers the kind of fake ITK people, it gives them an out. Uh, and at the same time, rather unfortunately, it can reflect badly on a journalist or a reporter who has, throughout the entire story, provided information in good faith. Yeah. I mean, and it's like anything you're buying. It can go wrong, can't yeah. it, at the very last? Like you're buying a house, you're buying a car, you're buying a bike. Anything can happen. Mm. You, you know, that, that deal is done. And then right at the last, something happens, someone changes their mind, and, it's, and, the, and the plug is pulled. I mean... Nabil Fakir was at Anfield holding up a Liverpool shirt, um, and that never happened. That yeah, never yeah, got yeah. done. You know, he got to that stage and it fell through. So that just shows anything can happen at any point um, that can affect the deal. And then, yeah, suddenly, as a journalist, you can, especially with how with social media nowadays, you know, you can get it, you can get you can get destroyed over it really for something that's not even your fault. It's not your fault the deal breaks down. You've reported mm. on something that's absolutely spot on the whole way through. And then just because a deal doesn't get done, somehow, somehow it's your fault and you were talking rubbish and it wasn't true when it absolutely was. And mm. it's one of the things I hate about social media is almost now your your quality as a journalist is almost judged on transfers. And I hate that with an absolute passion because transfers is not, I mean, it's a part of football, but it's not the most important part of football. The most important part of football is football. The football, football. Yeah. Not about who signs who and who got what first. I mean, one one journalist in the world can break a story each time. You know, can be the first person to report on something that is in an interest or something like that. And then, yeah. you know, it's very hard to get that. So hard to be the very first person, especially 
if you're based in one country and the deal's happening elsewhere in another part of the country. And and yet you're sort of ranked. I hate this whole tier system of, oh, he's a tier one journalist, he's a tier two source, all that stuff. It's such rubbish. It's like you've got some of the best journalists that I know are sort of considered tier five journalists, which is utter bollocks, to be fair, because they're <laughs> fantastic journalists who are brilliant. And then somehow I, I'm like, in, in these charts I see, I'm up at like tier one or tier two, which I look at it and I just think it's, it, you know, I, I would dream of being as good a journalist as some of these guys who are down ranked as tier five and tier four and being able to write like them and mm. tell stories like them and everything like that. You know, I dream of that. And yet, by it, and a lot of people hold me in higher esteem than them because I I said Arsenal were making a move for Thomas Party on transfer deadline day or something like that. And mm. it's just, it's just, the whole transfer thing is, oh, I hate it. I was talking to, you know, Lewis Ambrose. Yeah. Um, I was talking to him about it the other day and um, he said, I would love to fast forward to the first week, the first uh, weekend <laughs> after the transfer window is shut and just yeah. cut all this bullshit out. Yeah. Now, and not have to worry because it puts, you know, as a journalist, I, I feel totally under pressure during the window to try and get stuff and to, um, you know, to, to a service work and, you know, make it look like I'm I'm doing what I am doing. Yeah. Um, but also to, you know, get so many questions about everything and, you know, constant. And I, I want to keep people updated, but most of the time there's nothing to say. It's like the, the Andre and Anna story, for example, Um I get the amount of questions I get every day of like, what's happening with that? What's happening with that? It's like, well, nothing's happening with that. Nothing since I last reported on it. Nothing's changed. If I knew something had happened, I would report it, but <laughs> nothing has happened. And it's almost that demand for every single bit to be updated every single day when there is nothing to update. And yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's a difficult time I find as a journalist. And um, like I was saying at Lewis, I'd, I would love nothing more just to fast forward each summer get to the start of the season, transfer window be shut, know exactly who we've got, who we haven't got, yeah. and then just concentrate on football. It would uh, it would be a hell of a lot less stressful yes. in terms of my job anyway. No, I'm sure. And for everybody, I think if we could just, you know, go into a little hibernation for the summer or go on holidays, put your feet up, lie in a hammock and drink cocktails for a few months and then come back and everything is sorted. It is this, this clamor, this desire for information is really... It's huge, isn't it? And I, it just struck me like when you're talking about the Onana thing there, that, that like stuff happens and then quite often nothing happens for ages. It's not like there are negotiators in rooms 24-7, you know, thrashing out deals here, there and everywhere. You know, quite often communication, it goes dark even when there is, you know, uh, interest in a player or, or a deal to be done. For long periods, nothing can happen for various reasons. Well, look at Thomas Partey last season. That went to deadline day. Yet the interest was there the entire summer. Well, dating mm. back well before the entire summer, and yet it didn't happen until deadline day. And all that all that needed was was the release clause to be hit. And yet they waited the entire summer. Yeah. So, um, you know, it just doesn't it doesn't all happen quickly. And I think everyone's so determined for signings to be made a week after the window opens that when it doesn't happen, it just builds up and builds up and frustration builds up frustration builds up you'll see another club sign someone then suddenly that frustration increases even more and mm. yeah i mean to be fair i can't before i started this job and went before i say i remember like 10 years ago when i was working on my local paper down here in maidenhead and uh, i would sit in <laughs> i'd sit in the newsroom trying to get the back page done for on maidenhead united all the time while having twitter up 
having a right go that Arsenal hadn't signed Jan and Villa and stuff. <laughs> so I can't really, I can't say it too much because I was in the same situation 10 years ago before I was actually doing this job and I was getting as angry as everyone else that we hadn't yeah, signed yeah, yeah. those sort of players. <laughs> getting excited that Cazorla was signing and wanting to know more about when, when he was coming over from Malaga and stuff like that. So I can understand it. And, uh, but yeah, I think now I'm actually in this seat and I'm doing it. Mm. It's uh, the sort of balls on the other foot and it, it's a, I can see why for journalists it's a difficult a difficult time. Yeah, well, look, I look forward to you breaking the uh, the long-awaited signing of Solomon Kalou this summer, Charles. <laughs> <laughs> stay He's a free agent. He's a free agent this summer. <laughs> Perfect. Well, look, stay as uh, sane as you can. Keep up the good work, and it was great to talk to you. Thanks a million. Top man. Cheers, Andrew. Thank you very much indeed to Charles. You can find him on Twitter at Charles underscore Watts. That is at Charles underscore Watts, and he writes about Arsenal and other things for Goal.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Now, there is a lot going on at every level of the club this summer the men's team, the women's team, and at youth slash under 23 level. Steve Bold is gone. This week, the club advertised for a new head coach for the under 23s. I'm not sure if this is something that they have to do, if they're legally obliged to do that, or if it's because, well, they're struggling to find the right candidate. Nevertheless, plenty to do, lots to talk about. And with me to do that, the man who knows all there is to know about Arsenal at this level, it's George Bird. Hi, George. Hi. Steve Bold's departure was announced this week. Uh, it's bringing an end to his 33-year time at the club. As a coach, he won the uh, the FA Youth Cup. He worked with Arsene Wenger. He worked with the Unai Emery setup, moved back down to work with the under-23s again. It wasn't particularly good last season. I think there were reasons for that we might come to. But how would you sum up his time and his work at the club as a coach? Um, well, firstly, he had a um, good pedigree as a coach at youth level Um from his spell in charge of the under 18s. Mm-hmm. Um, he coached like the likes of Seth Fabregas, um, Jack Wilshire, et cetera. And he had a good reputation. But um, since he became under 23 coach, I think he did okay in his first season. He helped to develop the likes of Balogun and John Jules. But then mm-hmm. last season, um, as everyone knows, the results uh, weren't very good. Um, some of his selections were a bit puzzling, but you don't know, like, whether he was told to play certain players sometimes. I don't know, it's a difficult one because um, like he's such a prominent figure like at Arsenal, but um, I think there were times where maybe he could have given players like more freedom tactically last season. But I actually didn't expect him to get sacked because we've had seasons at youth level before where um, the results haven't been that great and then the coaches still kept their job. But I think Mertesack is just trying to probably move things forward and try and get somebody who's a bit younger and is trying to play like um, free-flowing football. But it's disappointing to see Bold go, especially because he's had um, 
That's such a long association with the club. How difficult was it for him last season? Because there was this strange sort of gap, wasn't there, in that, like, there was this generation of young players that have come through uh, and and made it to the fringes of the first team and, and sort of become first team players. And you can look at Saka, Smithrow, Willock, Malon, Niles, Inkedia, et cetera, et cetera. And it felt a little bit like last summer there was a gap in terms of, numbers because a lot of players went out on loan and then there was an age gap as well wasn't there the the next generation wasn't quite ready so the club went on this quite strange recruitment drive bringing in players maybe who hadn't quite made it elsewhere maybe they were taking a gamble on some young talent who who perhaps didn't get a chance somewhere else and could flourish at Arsenal and what have you but it it doesn't seem like those players have worked out quite the way uh, they would have liked so there was a little bit for him to deal with in terms of the players he had available to him? Um, yeah, it was very difficult circumstances. As you said, we loaned out a lot of players and I think most of them were centre-backs as well, so we were mm. quite short in that area. And as you said, the players that were brought in, they were like really unusual signings, the likes of Dinsey, Akinola and George Lewis. They didn't really... Akinola played a lot of games, but none of them really made a major impact. And I think um, most of them are going to be sent out on loan next season, so... They're probably unlikely to make it at Arsenal, so they're basically just stop gaps. So that may have contributed a bit to the results. And also, um, there were times when there were like FA Youth Cup games around the same time I'd done 23 games. So like key players like Aziz, etc., like sometimes missed out on the 23s and that had an impact on the results as well. What is the the, the state of play with regards to a replacement for Steve Bold? Are you aware of any names that are in the hat? Are they looking internally or externally for a replacement? Well, the reports like this week suggested that uh, Kevin Betts is like, under consideration. He's coached like various England youth teams and he knows like quite a few of the Arsenal youth players as well. And um, I think he's like, got a reputation for being a like, modern coach with a progressive style. So that could be something that works well, but a decision hasn't been made yet. But um, they're due back in training in like, a couple of weeks. So I think something should happen right, very quickly. We have a question from the Discord, our Discord for Patreon members. And Othman uh, wants to know, what what do you think of Per Mertesacker's implementation of his vision uh, for the club? Because he's he's... He's a man who's obviously got some ideas about what way he wants the players to be brought up and be educated at Arsenal, you know, as footballers and as and as people too. Um, you know, how much alignment is there with, you know, what he wants, what Mikel Arteta wants? Is there a sort of um, symbiosis there in some ways? Are they working together to build the academy here? And is the departure of someone like Steve Bowl, for example, a natural consequence of trying to put something new in place? Um, yes, I think so. I think Arteta and Matsaka work um, quite closely together. And also, um, Arteta often like, invites like, a lot of on 23 to train with the first team. But I think he's still like even though he's been there quite a long time, it's still too early to judge uh, Mertesacker properly because um, we need to wait a few more years for that. But um, he does have like very clear ideas and I think he's trying to, in a way, like imitate Chelsea's policy of like loaning out a lot of players every year and then um, selling some of them and then just the best ones getting to the first team. But we can still possibly make money from other ones. But yeah, as you said, there's a very... like. There's a huge emphasis on how players act off the pitch. He just doesn't really accept it if 
people like aren't disciplined. Um, there was one incident last season where a player was involved in a disciplinary incident and then he got dropped from the match day squad like straight away. So, yeah. but I think he he knows what he wants to do. But there are times when you can see he's like a bit inexperienced at times because um, with like for example the players that he brought in last year. But I think he does know what he's doing. He's got a, a strong like philosophy but we still have to wait like a few more years to judge him properly yeah it does take time doesn't it to build something at a academy level and youth level and you know this week we saw the departure of you know three fairly well-known youth players mark mcginnis trey coyle and zach medley who have all left the club and this idea that we might you know use the academy to develop players send them out on loan maybe they don't make it with us but we can get some money in for them you know maybe we've got some distance to go just yet because those players have left on on free transfers and as far as I'm aware or I was told that there are sell-on clauses of course in the in the deals there so if they go and they develop and they command a fee in the future we will we will benefit from that but you know the level I guess has to become more consistently uh, higher if you're going to sell players directly from your youth system yeah but I think um the thing is with those players and like the other players who are in like their age group, a lot of them, they're quite good players, but I don't think most of them are going to make it anyway. So mm. that's why we're seeing quite a lot of departures now. But I think the generation like after that, are the ones who are about 17 years old now, um, like Patino and Hutchinson and Norton Cuffey, they're the ones who, like some of them actually have a genuine chance of making a breakthrough. So it'll be interesting to see like whether that loan policy continues in a couple of years because because you want to be like integrating some players into the first team as well so mm. it's going to be difficult to get a balance really but I think um, next season especially because we're not in Europe I can't really see that many chances for youngsters so I think most of them will go unknown well that's yeah I was going to ask you about that because you know Arsenal don't want to be in the Europa League we want to be in the Champions League but if there is a, a sort of side benefit to being in the Europa League it's the ability to use some of the younger players who aren't quite ready for first-team football at Premier League level, you can use them in the Europa League. And again, coming back to the the generation of Inkedia, Willock, Nelson, uh, Malan Niles, uh, Smith-Rosak, etc., etc., you know, they really have benefited from playing Europa League football. They've, you know, got semi-regular first-team appearances in a European competition, playing away from home in some big stadiums at times as well. And it's been a real benefit to them, and it's been a, a way for the club to sort of blood young talent to bring them through. Next season, with no Europe at all, uh, and with only 38 Premier League games, it becomes much more difficult for these guys to... Uh, to get chances. So there might be the the Carabao Cup round two, which could be an opportunity for some of them uh, for the first time in a long time we're going into that competition at round two. But beyond that, you know, if you get a friendly draw in round three, round four, you know, you can use some of those players. But beyond that, it's hard to see them being, uh, not trusted is the wrong word, but Mikel Arteta is going to have better players to choose from at at Premier League level. So how do we then uh, judge the, the performances of, the under-23 team in the sense that if the best young players, in order to develop them, are going to be loaned out, 
that's going to have an impact on results. Uh, do, do you feel maybe sometimes people look a bit too much at the results of the under-23 teams and think that things are poor when the reality is, you know, it is a, a, a developmental process for young players. It's not so much about results, but it's about how much playing time you can get these guys, where maybe you can send them on loan and, and how ready they are to make a step up as and when that happens. Yeah, I think that's definitely the case. I think results aren't always important at youth level and development's like definitely the most important thing. But um, that said, like if you look at um, some of the best like academy graduates in recent years, um, like Cochrane and Wilshire played and won the FA Youth Cup and then they made a lot of appearances. Mm. And then um, the likes of Smith Rowe and Ketia, Willock, they won the league with the under 23s and Saka finished second. So I think if you do have a lot of really talented players, then the results like will go well, but you can't like look into results too much, especially like under twenty threes. It's always like a mix and match team of like some older players and first team players dropping down. So it's it's difficult. It's really hard to get consistency unless you have like a really special couple of players. But as I said before, I think we've got players like who are about seventeen who are stepping into the under twenty threes now. So I actually yeah. think even if a lot of players are learned out, then. The under twenty three could do like quite well next season. What more are you expecting from from the club at youth level in terms of players anyway? I mean, it feels like the departures this week have are just kind of the start of what might be, I don't want to say a clear out, but it might be a case that in order to make room for the next crop, the next generation to come through, you do have to let some players go. So are you, are you expecting more departures? Um, yeah, I think so. But I think most of them will probably be on loan. Mm. Um, they've already made like eight players available for loan, like including like Molo, Cottrell, et cetera. So, yeah, but I think there will be some permanent departures as well. There's quite a few like older youngsters, like Dan Iliev, like 26, um, Talaji Bowler's 22, mm. um, George Ozzy Tuzu's 22 as well. So they need to like uh, move some of these players on. And Ben Sheaf's another one. Cause, but basically, they've got way too many like um, academy players at the moment. So, they have to get rid of some anyway, like even if they don't want to. So um, there will be a lot of departures, but I think it'll be mostly like loans with like most of the players who went on loan last season will probably like, go on loan again, like John Jules and Ballard. What about incoming deals? We do bring in players from other clubs and from abroad to bolster the ranks and to to try and develop them into first team players. But the the signings that we made last summer that we referenced earlier haven't really worked out. Do you think that's kind of it for that kind of process? Yeah, possibly. I think um, there will be some players coming in, but there'll probably be um, players who actually have a like genuine chance of like getting into the first team. Um, I mean, like last summer there were. Like the likes of Molo and Saladin, mm. like different types of signings, they're actually like really talented players. So I think there could be like a couple of like interesting prospects being signed. Um, there's one centre back from Peru who might train with Arsenal like this summer. So yeah, but I don't think they're going to be bringing in players like who got released by our clubs like last year. Who are the the standout prospects at at youth level now? Who are the ones that might be if we were to suffer an emergency tomorrow? Who are the ones? that are closest to the to the first team. Obviously, Balagoon is a name that everybody is aware of and he signed a new deal. Uh, and Miguel Aziz is a young midfielder who is very highly rated, lots of talent. And I suppose those are the two that if you were to ask people, they're probably closest. But beyond that, are there names, are there players who, who have the potential to sort of 
start knocking on the door a little bit. You know, players who, even if they're not necessarily going to, to play for the first team, might be involved regularly with first team training. Um, well, Kudo Taylor Hart, a winger, is a really talented player. He did very well for the under-23s last season, but the thing is we don't know whether he'll still be at Arsenal next season because his contract like, expires next week. But if he does stay, I think um, he will get opportunities um, mm. eventually. Um, and the other ones like, are like 17 years old, really. Um, Charlie Patino, a midfielder, is an excellent passer. Um, I think he will get closer to the first team next season. I don't think he'll get any minutes, but... Mm. Um, they'll definitely give him a chance eventually. And, and Marby Hutchinson as well. Um, he's a winger, but he can play at left back and attacking midfield. He's really skillful. And one more is um, Omar Rekic. He's a centre-back. He's already a full Tunisian international. We signed him um, earlier this year. He's struggled with injury, but he's a really talented player. And Yeah. We have a question from the Discord. Ash Richards90 says, uh, is there not a good fullback option in the reserves for both right back and left back? And obviously Arsenal this summer are looking for uh, backup for Kieran Tierney. And the right back situation is a bit up in the air because we don't know what's happening with Hector Bellerin, with Cedric Suarez. Callum Chambers could be an option there, but there's talk that Arsenal need or want to sign a right back, I should say. What What is there or what might there have been at, at youth level? Um, Joel Lopez was a, a left back that we brought in from Barcelona but but obviously not considered ready enough to deputise last season is he any closer to becoming a player that might be available for the first team or or how do you view the, the fullback situation? Well the thing is we've got a lot of um, talented uh, young right backs we just lost one in Daniel Ogoki but um, Brooke Norton Cuffey is a very good player and Erby Osu has done quite well but he might go on loan but I don't think any of them are not quite ready to step up yet, but in the future they could be. Mm. Um, at left-back, there aren't hardly any options at all, really. Um, Joel Lopez, there's a lot expected of him when he joined from Barcelona, but he hasn't really pushed on. Um, his positioning is not that great. I think he needs to go on loan next season, but it'll be difficult um, to, for him to make it anyway. Um, there are a couple of other like, young left-backs, but they're not ready yet. So I think if we want to um, back up left back we've got a sign one probably but at right back um, Norton Cuffey might be um, ready to step up even though he's only 17 because he's done like really well. Well, look, there's going to be plenty happening at, at a youth level across all levels of the club, actually, you know, from the men's team to the women's team to the youth team. Uh, people can uh, get the latest updates uh, from the Arsenal Youth and Under-23 setup, of course, on your site, Arsenal Youth, but also on Arsblog News, where you write columns for us uh, frequently. But for now, George, we better leave it there. Thanks very much. That was George. That was George Bird. You can find him on Twitter at George Bird, at George Bird, George with a J and not a G. His site is arsenalyouth.wordpress.com and he writes about the Arsenal youth and under 23s, etc. For Arsblog News, you can find him there. Right. That's kind of that. I suppose the one thing I should mention is at the time of recording, it is being reported that Arsenal and Brighton have reached an agreement over the signing of Ben White. A fee has been agreed. Apparently, behind the scenes, things have been done, 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 done deal, personal terms. All that kind of stuff has been sorted out ages ago between the club and the player. It was all about the deal now. Some suggestion of 45 million 
plus another $5 million based on bonuses, appearances, that kind of stuff. It does look as if Ben White is edging ever closer to being an Arsenal player. We'll wait until the signing actually goes through, until we get into the nuts and bolts of it. But £50 million is a lot. £45 million plus five, whatever way you want to put it, is a lot of money to spend on a defender when really the defence is not the most pressing part of our rebuild this summer. So I suppose you can look at it in a couple of ways, I guess. One is that, um, you know, we're being really silly and we're spending a load of the transfer budget on a player that we don't really, really, really need. It's not to say that Ben White can't come in and be a good player for Arsenal, but how are we going to solve our creative issues? Are we spending a big chunk of our transfer budget on a defender? Another way of looking at this, uh, and I guess it's very much a glass half full, and it's one of those where you'll believe it when you see it kind of situations, is that even though we are spending £50 million on a centre-half, we still have money to do the other stuff that we need to do, which is to buy a creative player, an attacking midfielder, as well as a central midfielder, at least one of those, uh, to slot in alongside Thomas Partey and maybe a couple of other things as well. So Arsenal as an institution have flummoxed me as much as they have you down the years, but I cannot believe that in a summer where we really need to prioritise the creative-slash-attacking side of of the transfer market, we're going to spend all our money on a defender. I just can't. I can't. I can't let myself believe that. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not. I just, I just feel like, even for us, that would be ridiculous. So... I'm hoping that Ben White comes in and there is still money to spend on a number 10, on a central midfielder, maybe on a right back, etc., etc. I have to I have to cling to that. It is perhaps something James and I can discuss in the next Arscast Extra. When is that, you say? I don't know. That's the bottom line. I don't know. It could be Sunday morning. It could be Sunday evening. It could be Monday morning. I don't quite know. James has got a busy schedule at the moment. We have yet to touch base about this weekend's recording, but we will have an Arsecast Extra for you in the next couple of days. Maybe there will be more transfer developments by the time we get around to recording that one. So please do join us for that. The Euros are on over the weekend. Knockout football could be exciting, could be fun. So enjoy that. In the meantime, look after yourselves. Have a great weekend, and we will catch you on the next one. Thanks, as always, for being here. Hope you enjoyed the show. Take it easy, folks. Cheers. Bye-bye. Look, man, it's so easy to get your head around, right? I'm going to do the shopping. You got that part? Right, the shopping. I look in the fridge before I go. What have I got in the fridge? Potatoes. Pretty expensive potatoes, too. Bought them a couple of years ago. Had to lend them back to the shopkeeper for a while, but now they're my potatoes. Potatoes with real promise.
They could be anything they want to be. Chips, hash browns, mashed potatoes, roast potatoes, samosas, croquettes, baked potato. If they go all the way to the top, they could become bourgeois potato waffles. So now, when I'm going to the supermarket and I've got me money, what am I going to buy? That's right. More potatoes. Even more expensive potatoes than the ones I've got already. Because you know what? You can never have too many fucking potatoes. Especially ones that are England internationals. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 